<clears throat> the other day, a letter arrived from a friend of mine, a young Italian doctor specializing in thoracic surgery. I met him in Milan approximately two years ago, a few months after he had joined the church. He's a fine, wonderful, clean-cut young man, the kind any parent would be proud of. He was living a good life. He thought he had no needs that were not being met until he found the gospel of Jesus Christ. I should like to share from his letter a few thoughts having to do with his feelings about himself. Quote, Without those two elders, my life could have been happy, full of satisfaction, but lacking all the benefits of love, faith, truth, knowledge, freedom, all the things coming only from God our Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. As a child of God, I am glad to live at this time on the earth, aware of the plan of salvation and of the great blessings I can receive upon my head. I am trying to do my best to fulfill the assignments which our Father gave me before sending me here on the earth." I continue, quote, I am filled with the wonderful feelings now that my parents joined the Church. Our lives are greatly changed, and our hearts are willing to do what our Father in Heaven wants us to accomplish." This wonderful young man has now achieved an awareness of his own identity, which so many people, young and old, are hungering for. Finding one's own intimate identity can be a great blessing in the life of every human being. Everyone can obtain it if they realize it comes only through the light of truth or, as explained by the Savior, the light of life. We read in John, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. As we endeavor to understand what it means to have the light of life, which is a most important aid in discovering our identity, we must of necessity know who Jesus is. From the Holy Scriptures we are told who He is, the Son of God, referred to as the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He was born of Mary. He is our Redeemer through whom repentance and forgiveness of sin are made possible. He it is who was condemned to die and, even while hanging on the cross, forgave His executioners. He is the same who rose from the tomb and by the, that act broke the bonds of death for all mankind, establishing the resurrection. This is the same Jesus who guides His Church in these latter days, which Church carries His name, even the name of Jesus Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Through direct teachings during his mortal life and through instruction given to both ancient and modern prophets, which are found recorded in the sacred scriptures, the Savior left all mankind sufficient teachings for each one to understand himself and to find his own true identity. It comes only through knowledge of, of and obedience to the commandments. Once it does come, the thoughts, I'm not worth anything, I'm just a nobody, will have no place in our lives. By true identity, I mean the relationship between self-worth and self-subordination. The quest for this is explained in the words of George T. Boyd in a talk he gave some years ago. Quote, Scripture reading enables man to see life, not alone from the human point of view, but in some de degree from God's. This perspective fills two of man's important needs—a sense of individual worth and a feeling of self-subordination. Either of these are achievable alone, but how easy it is for a sense of personal worth to turn to an intolerable egoism and self-conceit, or a sense of self-subordination turn into a false humility or morbid self-depreciation. In the scriptures, man finds that he belongs to a whole of which God is a part. Belonging to such a whole gives him a sense of the value of his own soul. But seen in relationship to God reveals his, reveals his dependence and hence his subordination. 
Thus, the devout use of the scriptures nourishes the spiritual life with a calm that displaces the doubts and anxieties which paralyze mankind. End quote. In Psalms 8 and 4, the question is asked, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The answer beautifully and clearly stated follows. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Thus we come to realize that we are to have dominion over all the other creations of God. In this capacity we have been given characteristics which are unique to the human race. Among them are an awareness of our own personality and the ability to strive for self-realization. We have the ability to extend our knowledge and to become aware of the nature of humanity and the nature of things about us. We have the power of abstract reasoning by which we can compare facts and determine the relationship between them and their relevance in our lives. We have the ability and the right to make choices. This is one of the greatest gifts of God to us. We have another unique quality. We have a will to master. By this power, we can control thoughts, emotions, appetites, and passions. We have a right to worship God and can seek power from Him to fulfill our destiny. With this unique capability and emphasis on the worth of souls in the sight of God also comes the opportunity for confusion. We live in a materialistic world. Some become confused and seek identity through riches or the accolades of men. The Savior makes it very clear in his teachings that it is not possible to realize the identity of which I speak through such means. In Luke we read, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, Do not kill, Do not steal, Do not bear false witness, Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It was not that the man was rich, but that he coveted his riches and would not share his wealth with the poor. Another example is also recorded in Luke. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Contrast these with the story of a 16-year-old priest who answered the telephone one day to hear the voice of a popular disc jockey on a local radio station. He was asked a question, and when he answered it correctly, he was informed he had just won a, an expensive new sports car. It seemed like a dream come true for a teenage boy. A loving bishop was concerned about what such a car might do to the boy, thinking it might draw him away from all we hold dear. He asked him about his feelings. The bishop could hardly believe his ears when the young man indicated he was not going to take the car, but he would accept the cash award instead. He said, Now my mission is paid for. What an outstanding example of proper balance in an attitude toward worldly wealth or recognition and Christ-like values. 
I'm acquainted with another young man who struggled to achieve this balance. He had received tremendous recognition as an athlete. He started swimming competitively at age 13 and would practice upwards of 30 hours every week. He became a national champion and a winner of a bronze medal at the 1968 Olympic Games. He was an All-American in college for three years. After graduation, he went on to medical school and did very well. During all this, he had excluded himself from any spiritual association and had little warmth for, toward people less fortunate or less talented than he. He was struggling for a real feeling of self-worth. In his own words, I would tell myself, You are an Olympian. You have a good mind. You will become a doctor and have the good life. I would tell myself this as I was contemplating suicide. I was full of faults and vain pride. End quote. Fortunately, during his senior year at medical school, he went to live with a country doctor who understood the struggles he was having. With the encouragement of his older mentor, he began to read the scriptures. At first, he did so with arrogance confident that intellectually he could understand all he read, which he found he could not do. Again, in his own words, I was halfway through Genesis and was learning very little when I said to myself, there must be chapters that are written in a way that will be easier to understand. I turned to Numbers and found that I understood even less." End quote. Finally, he pursued his studies in the right spirit, wanting to learn and to feel. Slowly, as he prayed and studied and prayed some more, he began to realize that he was a child of a loving Father in heaven and, as such, had tremendous potential as an individual. He accepted the Savior's counsel to build our lives upon a foundation of rock. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. My brothers and sisters, I hope that we might always accept the Savior's challenge to us to build upon a rock rather than sand, and to walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. I bear you my testimony and witness that we can only find individual identity and happiness as children of light, possessing the light of life as found through the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. For it was he who said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I would like to confine my remarks today to the principle of forgiveness as it applies to a person who has been disfellowshipped or excommunicated. By applying this principle, we can succor the weak, lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. The most loving action the Church can take at times is to disfellowship or excommunicate a person. This statement may seem incongruous to someone who does not understand the true nature of repentance and forgiveness, and even within the Church, members sometimes have difficulty knowing how they should relate to such a person. Should I limit my association to protect myself in case the sin is contagious? Should I show my disgust that he or she would commit such a serious transgression, take my business and friendship elsewhere? Should I act as if nothing had happened, or should I show forth increased interest in that person? to demonstrate my love and concern. These are important questions which deserve genuine answers. I am concerned about this matter, for whatever actions are taken have serious consequences both for the transgressor 
and for his well-meaning but sometimes ill-informed associates who may be members of the Church in good standing. I am even more concerned at the attitudes of victims of transgression, those who are hurt by the transgressor's actions. For an appropriate example, I look to my own grandchildren. Occasionally they quarrel or speak harshly one to another, but I am amazed and pleased when I observe how quickly the victim of a harsh word or action forgives and forgets. I am delighted that the offender is soon welcomed back into the fold of love by his brothers and sisters, and mother and father teach the offending child not to give offense again. So the family grows in affection. If we are going to teach our children the principle of forgiveness, we need to begin with our own lives. We must set our children a good example. In dealing with family or friends, we hurt them when we are selfish or thoughtless. But if we change our ways to avoid giving offense in the future, it is easier to to receive forgiveness. Repentance is a change of behavior which invites forgiveness. If father and mother forgive each other quickly and show increased love and consideration for each other, their children will quickly learn to act likewise. Repentance and forgiveness will become standards within that family. If we learn to forgive one another within the family, we'll be able to forgive more readily within the Church and within the community, like many good things. Forgiveness begins in the home. We must remember to teach our children that even if others fail to be kind and considerate, we ought to be slow to condemn and very quick to forgive. We need not be tolerant of sin, but we must become tolerant and forgiving of the sinner. Jesus Christ gave His life to reconcile us to God so that through His Atonement we can repent and receive forgiveness of our sins. We owe our Savior a great debt. Part of that debt is the obligation we have to forgive one another. When Jesus taught the Nephites, He told them, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That forgiveness which comes from our Heavenly Father is so complete that He will not even call to mind the sins we have committed. His forgiveness is so all-inclusive that the Lord will not even remember those sins. But there is a condition attached to that forgiveness. By this ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. As we plead for mercy, we need to show mercy for others. The injury people do us may appear at the moment to be very great, yet just as time heals the wounds of the body, so time also heals the wounds of the soul. As we apply disinfectants to aid in healing the wounds of the body, we need to apply love and understanding in disinfecting the wounds of the soul. To the extent we give forgiveness to others, we can expect to receive forgiveness for ourselves. It's all part of the process of repentance. My special assignment as a general authority is to assist the First Presidency in bringing people who have committed serious sins back into the Church. I receive, organize, and summarize information for the First Presidency to use in making decisions. I must read the background material to make certain that all pertinent information is available to them. As I read the heartbreak contained in letters of people pleading for forgiveness, I realize the truth of Alma's statement, Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. My heart goes out to those sufferers in a spirit of forgiveness, and instead of dwelling on the wickedness and grief of those who have sinned, I rejoice to read how many have abandoned their sinful practices and are now on the road back to righteousness and happiness. People can and do change. When people are disfellowshipped or excommunicated from the Church, it is done not to punish but to help them. Church discipline requires this action, but we should remember that the word discipline has the same root as the word disciple. A disciple is a student or follower, one who is learning. 
Church discipline, then, must become a teaching process. When a person is disciplined, he should not be thrust out and abandoned by his associates. It is exactly at that time when we need to show increased love for such people to teach and show them the way back to God. It is wicked to reject a child of God simply because he made an error. We need to teach him how to start anew, to change evil practices into righteous deeds, and thus transform his life. With repentance through service to others, he can be reinstated into fellowship or washed clean in the waters of baptism and brought back into the family of God. To teach people to overcome sin and change their lives for the better is the sum and substance of Christian service. We must do everything in our power to aid sinners to change their lives for the better. Otherwise, as the scriptures warn us, we will have to shoulder their sin ourselves. Our obligation is to teach and help them. The sinner's obligation is to listen and learn. He will have to bear the whole burden himself if he refuses. But regardless of his present attitude, we must never abandon him, nor think his reformation is hopeless. There is hope for everyone. And we must never cease trying to help people understand that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, not only the sins of mankind in general, but also their personal sins can be forgiven. One thing causes me great concern as I read letters from those who have been injured. I'm concerned with the feeling of resentment and hatred some people have expressed against the spouse that betrayed or abused them and their children. Occasionally a wife, for example, in a spirit of revenge, may attempt to get even with her spouse by sinning in the same manner. But all she does by that tragic action is to destroy herself. Some individuals have expressed such resentment against a former spouse that they write that nothing that spouse could ever do could right the wrong he or she committed. They insist they can never forgive a spouse for the pain and suffering that spouse has caused. A person with that attitude can hardly be called a follower of Jesus Christ. Even of those who were so wicked, they crucified their Savior, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So when Peter asked the Lord how often he should forgive a person who sinned against him, till seven times, Jesus answered, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. People can and do change, and our duty is to forgive them. Many people bring troubles and difficulties upon themselves by an unforgiving attitude. Hence, in a modern revelation, Jesus Christ revealed this great truth. Wherefore, I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. I take that to mean that it's a greater sin to refuse to forgive a person than it is to commit the sin for which that person was disfellowshipped or excommunicated. The Lord went on to say, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. We must be willing to forgive others and even to forgive ourselves. As we struggle toward that perfection which Jesus Christ holds out for us, let us give emphasis to forgiveness. Let us cultivate that aspect of our character and rejoice in the spirit of forgiveness which is the comforting message of the atonement. I pray that we may all cultivate that spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. For the past several years, I have served as the executive director of the church curriculum department. When I became fully aware of the immense effort required to prepare a single course of study, I was overwhelmed. I now have a great appreciation for the approved teaching materials of the church. Let me give you an example. The present Gospel Doctrine Teacher Supplement 
which was prepared to help teachers teach the New Testament, was written by a committee of faithful and knowledgeable church service writers who were called and set apart for that service by one of the general authorities. Their work commenced in the spring of 1980, following general authority approval of the outline. Writing committee members spent thousands of hours researching, writing, and attending biweekly committee meetings where the entire committee critiqued each lesson carefully and suggested improvements. The work of the writing committee then was reviewed by the general authority managing directors of the priesthood and curriculum departments, the general presidency and board of the Sunday School, church editing, and church correlation review. This manual received careful scrutiny at many levels before it was approved for use in Sunday School this year. All teaching materials for the Church follow this same basic procedure in preparation. Teachers would be well advised to study carefully the scriptures and their manuals before reaching out for supplemental materials. Far too many teachers seem to stray from the approved curriculum materials without fully reviewing them. If a teacher's feel a need to use some good supplemental resources beyond the scriptures and the manuals in presenting a lesson, they should first consider the use of Church magazines. Teachers can stay on safe ground when they use the standard works, the approved manuals, and the writings of general authorities. Elder Hiram M. Smith of the Council of the Twelve said, There is more to be learned in five minutes reading in the Holy Scriptures, more that is worthy of retention in the memory, more that will be helpful if we remember and obey them than we can find in reading all of the six bestsellers in every month in the year. I believe there is no greater call in the Church than to be an effective teacher. Effective teaching by the Spirit can stir the souls of men with a desire to live the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ more completely. In each teaching setting, whether it is a family home evening, a class, a sacrament meeting, or a general or state conference, the teacher should strive to create a heartfelt desire in his students to live worthy of eternal life with our Heavenly Father. Regarding the need of effective teaching in the Church, President Kimball gave this counsel, Please take a particular interest in strengthening and improving the quality of teaching in the Church. I fear at times that all too often many of our members come to Church, sit through a class or meeting, and then return home, having been largely uninformed. We are all need to be touched and nurtured by the Spirit, and effective teaching is one of the most important ways this can happen. Close quote. The Apostle Paul placed the priority of teachers in the Church next only to apostles and prophets when he said, And God hath set some in the Church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. President Brigham Young used the following story to illustrate the potential influence of teachers. A traveler in the, in the eastern country overtook an old gentleman walking towards a town, and he asked him, Who is the great man of that little town? Who is your leading man? Who is the governor and the controlling spirit of that little place? The old gentleman replied, I am king of that little town. Really? says the traveler. Are you the leading man? Yes, sir. I am king in that place and reign as king. How do you make this to appear? Are you in affluent circumstances? 
No, I am poor. But in that little village, there are so many children. All those children go to my school. I rule the children, and they rule their parents, and that makes me king. <laughs> President David O. McKay said, No greater responsibility can rest upon any man than to be a teacher of God's children. May we ask you, priesthood leaders who call your members to become teachers, to be prayerful and concerned when selecting those who will teach in your stakes, wards, or quorums. Be sure to provide ongoing, in-service teacher training. Visit the classrooms on occasion and express genuine interest in the great cause of teaching. Please do not leave this most important work unattended. The Lord set the example when he sent Paul to the home of Ananias. The Lord did not leave him to flounder in his newly found faith, but rather, as recorded in the ninth chapter of Acts, Paul received specific training to become a mighty gospel teacher and apostle. Should not every teaching setting within the Church be a forum of faith where the teacher strengthens spirituality and fosters faith in the lives of those being taught? President J. Reuben Clark's instruction to a group of professional teachers apply to all teachers in the Church. He said, Your essential and all but sole duty is to teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to teach this gospel by using as your sources and authorities the standard works of the Church and the words of those whom God has called to lead His people in these last days. You are not to intrude into your work your own peculiar philosophy, no matter what its source or how pleasing or rational it seems to you to be. Close quote. Jesus chided the Sadducees for their incorrect teaching. He said, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. The Lord stressed the need for prayerful preparation by teachers, as recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. And the Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith. And if ye receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. One of the great teachers in my life, President Ann Eldon Tanner, said, In my opinion, no greater call can come to anyone than to be a teacher in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are all teachers in one way or another, whether we have been called and set apart as such or not. Close quote. Surely no teachers in the Church are more important than fathers and mothers. No classroom is more important than the home. Parents have been commanded to teach their children the gospel. My brothers and sisters, I believe that every human soul is teaching something to someone nearly every minute here in mortality. May we consider with great reverence the trust that the Lord has placed in us to teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. May I urge each member of the Church, when you are serving as a teacher, to remember that every human soul is precious to our Father in heaven, for we are all his children. God's children are surely entitled to be taught the truths of the gospel in clear and understandable terms, so that the Spirit can confirm the truths of the gospel to them. My plea to the teachers of the Church is to Study, ponder, and pray for guidance in your preparation. Use the scriptures and the approved curriculum materials, teaching with the objective to bless and inspire the lives of those assigned to you. 
Let us also remember that some of the most effective activation work in the Church is accomplished by those teachers who reach out to the inactive, loving and teaching them until they are once again in full fellowship with the saints. To the Master Teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose resurrection we celebrate at this Easter time, I say, I thank Thee, O Lord, for teaching us that there is no greater call than to be an effective teacher. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I thank the choir for that beautiful number. I have a message for parents about the education of your children. Several weeks ago, I had in my office a four-star general and his wife. They were very impressive people. They admire the Church because of the conduct of our youth. The general's wife mentioned her children, of whom she is justly proud, but she expressed a deep concern. Tell me, she said, how are you able to control your youth and build such character as we've seen in your young men? I was interested in her use of the word control. The answer, I told them, centered in the doctrines of the gospel. They were interested, so I spoke briefly of the doctrine of agency. I said we develop control by teaching freedom. Perhaps at first they thought we start on the wrong end of the subject. A four-star general is nothing if not a disciplinarian. But when one understands the gospel, it becomes very clear that the best control is self-control. It may seem unusual at first to foster self-control by centering on freedom of choice, but it is a very sound doctrinal approach. While either subject may be taught separately, and though they may appear at first to be opposites, they really are part of the same subject. Some who do not understand the doctrinal part do not readily see the relationship between obedience and agency, and they miss one vital connection and see obedience only as restraint. They then resist the very thing that will give them true freedom. There is no true freedom without responsibility, and there is no enduring freedom without a knowledge of the truth. The Lord said, If ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The general quickly understood a truth that is missed even by some in the Church. Latter-day Saints are not obedient because they are compelled to be obedient. They are obedient because they know certain spiritual truths and have decided as an expression of their own individual agency to obey the commandments of God. We are the sons and daughters of God, willing followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and under this head are we made free. Those who talk of blind obedience may appear to know many things, but they do not understand the doctrines of the gospel. There is an obedience that comes from a knowledge of the truth that transcends any external form of control. We are not obedient because we are blind. We are obedient because we can see. The best control, I repeat, is self-control. The general knew then why we teach our children the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ and where they get their resolute determination to protect individual freedom. Responsibility for teaching the doctrines rests upon parents. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake the evil one. I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. If all your children know about the gospel, 
If all they know is what you have taught them at home, how safe will they be? Will they reject evil because they choose to reject it? As a young man in military service, I visited the ancient shrine at Nikko Kanko in Japan. There carved into the facade of a building are the three monkeys, one with its hands over its ears, another over its eyes, and the third over its mouth. See no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. That's easier said than done. It's not easy to foster self-control when the world is teaching indulgence. Fortunately, there's very substantial help for parents. Unfortunately, some families overlook it. Several years ago, I attended a seminary graduation in Hawaii. A handsome young Hawaiian athlete was being honored. He'd been blessed with a well-formed body, and he'd excelled in several sports. As athletes often are, he was well-known both in and out of the church. His athletic coaches had trained him for the most part in the coordination of his physical powers, adding a little on such virtues as determination and courage. He said it had not been difficult for him to achieve athletically. If he practiced and kept the training rules, the muscles of his body responded as he wished, and he had coordination and control. Then he talked of a control that did not come easy and said, I found it easier to control the muscles in my arms and legs than to control the muscles in my tongue. I found it easier to control my eyes on the playing field than on the street. It's not easy to control what I will hear. Most of all, it's not easy to control my thoughts. He then expressed gratitude for the seminary program and paid tribute to his seminary teachers. They were the coaches who taught him control over the most permanent part of his nature. It's not long before the ability to throw a ball or leap a barrier or lift a weight uh, become incidental in life. Physical prowess fades, but moral and spiritual strength can grow stronger as the physical part of us weakens with age. If you want your children to grow spiritually, teach them the doctrines of the gospel. If you want your son to play the piano, it's good to expose him to music. This may give him a feel for it and help greatly in his learning. But this is not enough. There's the practice and the memorization and the practice and the practice and the practice before he can play well. If you want your daughter to learn a language, expose her to those who speak it. She may get a feel for the language, even pick up many words. But this is not enough. She must memorize grammar and vocabulary. She must practice pronunciation. There is a rote learning without which she will never speak or write the language fluently. So it is with the gospel. <clears throat> one may have a feel for it, but sometime one must learn the doctrine. Here, too, rote learning, practice, memorization, reading, listening, discussion, all become essential. There is no royal road to learning. The Church can help parents because this kind of learning is effectively given in a classroom setting. So we have seminaries, institutes, religion classes. There are priesthood, Sunday school, and auxiliary classes. The curriculum for all of them centers in the scriptures and the history of the Church. Spiritual development is tied very closely to a knowledge of the scriptures where the doctrines are found. A school library may hold a world of knowledge, but unless a student knows the system of cataloging, a search for that knowledge will be discouraging. It will be an ordeal. Those systems are really not too difficult to learn. Then all of the knowledge in all of the books is open to them. Searching becomes very simple indeed. But one must find it and read it. One must earn it. It is so with the scripture. They contain the fullness of the everlasting gospel, an eternity of knowledge. But one must learn to use them, or the search will be discouraging. Again, there is a system. Learn about the concordance, the footnotes, the topical guide. Memorize the books of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And the scriptures will then yield their treasure. 
All of this is taught in the seminary and institute classes. The teachers are both worthy and well-trained, but they cannot help if your students are not enrolled. There's a revolution in progress. The silicone chip has changed our future. We move from the industrial age to the age of information. And schools are tooling up to meet the challenge. Graduation requirements for high school and entrance requirements for colleges are being tightened up. Elective courses are being reduced in number, and they must be carefully selected. Without guidance, your student may choose another elective instead of seminary or another course instead of an institute class. That would surely be a mistake. It would be like adding one more brick to the house of knowledge when there's little mortar to hold it all together. Parents, encourage, even insist, that your students register for seminary and institute. Presidents, bishops, youth leaders, you are responsible to encourage every youngster without exception to enroll. Few things you do will benefit them quite as much. And students, if your values are in place, you will not hesitate to forego an elective class that may decorate your life in favor of instruction which can hold together the very foundation of it. Then once enrolled, study and learn. Persuade your friends to do the same. You will never regret it. This I promise you. Parents, you are greatly indebted to teachers. Somehow you must show it by supporting them. Very few teachers are unworthy of support. If there's a problem too frequently and all too quickly, some parents side with their child against a teacher. As a rule of thumb, we've told our youngsters that disrespect for teachers in public schools or in church schools brings trouble at home as well. This year, 200,000 students are enrolled in seminary and over 120,000 in institutes of religion in 18 languages in 68 countries. Whether it be release time, the early morning, or home study programs, the courses are the same. They center in the scriptures. They teach the doctrine and history of the Church. Some classes are very humble indeed. Brother Kimball and I once attended a seminary class in North Dakota. We did not meet in a fine room with a blackboard and projector and special school chairs. We met in a very small bedroom in a very small house. The teacher, Sister Two Dogs, sat on the edge of the bed. The students crowded together on the floor. It was no less a class than one held in a beautiful building. The most important ingredient, the Spirit of the Lord, was there. I attended a seminary graduation in Omaha, Nebraska. The speaker, again a young man, described this experience. Each morning I awoke to the sweet voice of my mother calling out, John, John, time to get ready for seminary. The year rolled on and the mornings grew cold and wet and dark. Still the happy voice of mother would sing out, John, John, time to get up for seminary. And then he added, I learned to hate that sound. <clears throat> but then, choking back the tears, he thanked his mother for what she had given him. And I think only later did he realize that she had to be up first. The temptation your children will find will not come at home or in the seminary class. It will come later when they are away from both the teacher and the parent. One day you must set them free. When that day comes, how free will they be? How safe? It will depend on how much truth they have received. I know of a young missionary who, half a world away from his parents and teachers, faced the testing that comes to young manhood there, beyond the control of either of them. He made a decision. Later he wrote, I'm so glad I stayed, because during this last month I found something. I found myself. I thank God for teachers in the Church, you who have chosen or have been chosen for the better part.
In those discouraging hours before immature, disinterested, and sometimes impudent students, may you hear a voice as well, that still small voice of inspiration whispering, Teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you. The Lord was a teacher. I bear testimony of him and pray that he will bless all those who follow in his footsteps to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. May we say to you who are watching conference from a distance that springtime has come to Salt Lake City. We have had a delightful season. We have had our warm days almost like summer. Our tulips and our daffodils are in full bloom. Our lawns are green again. And to just show that springtime is fickle, even in Salt Lake City, we may say that we have had a wonderful snowstorm today. The whole valley is covered in a blanket of white. The trees are like trimmed with ermine and our pine trees and our fir trees almost resemble the pictures on the front of Christmas cards. But springtime to us means more than weather. Springtime always brings Easter, and Easter turns our minds to Jesus Christ, our Savior. It was he who was born in Bethlehem, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace. He holds out to, to us the promise of goodwill and does so to all mankind. It was he who gave us the true meaning of Easter through his glorious resurrection. With the assurance of everlasting life, think of it, everlasting life. When he was born, he was called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. But he also was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. How appropriate that name, for he was God. And indeed, he came into the world to be with us, God with us. That was his name. This he was, in fact. He was deity before he was born into mortality, and he was his divine self while on the earth. He did not change his identity. He forever remains the Son of God, our Redeemer and our Savior. He died on the cross to atone for the sins of all who will obey him, and he broke the bands of death to provide a resurrection for us all. His atonement was the most important event that ever happened. The creation of this earth, the establishment of the twelve tribes of Israel, and the labors of the great patriarchs and prophets all were but prelude to his great achievement on Calvary. Offerings were burned on the altars of Israel throughout Old Testament times in symbolic anticipation of the great sacrifice of him who was called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As Jehovah of the preexistent life, Jesus was the central figure in making the primeval arrangements for mortal existence of the human race. It was he who volunteered to die for us. It was he who gave all honor to our Heavenly Father. It was he who became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. As the Apostle Peter said, There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Much advanced preparation was required for his atonement, even before he was born in the flesh. For one thing, an earth was required on which we, the children of God could live during our mortal existence. Of necessity, that earth must be physical, physical in its nature, for we who were to live on it 
would be physical beings such as we now are. It had to be a physical earth, also on which the Savior could live out his mortal life. His existence in Palestine was to be physical, in a body of flesh and bones like our own. On this earth he would endure the physical suffering of crucifixion. He would die physically. And then, how glorious it was, he would bring about a physical resurrection. Therefore, a physical earth was essential to his mission. There was nothing ethereal about his work here on earth. It was not to be accomplished in some intangible or mystical way. His life on earth was real and physical. His death was real and physical, as was his resurrection, all taking place on this very real and physical planet. It fully demonstrated his genuine reality as a physical being. When plans for his atonement were made in the primeval councils in heaven, a portion of that planning centered on the creation of this particular earth, for it would require an act of divine architecture followed by a process of physical construction. Without this earth, could Christ have been born to Mary in Bethlehem? Could he have died on the cross in Jerusalem? Could he have been resurrected from the tomb? Without this earth, would there have been Roman soldiers to nail him to the cross and afterward to guard his tomb? Could he have manifested himself physically as a resurrected person physically to his disciples as proof of his resurrection? Would the other Mary have been in the garden on that first Easter morning to hear the angel say, He is not here. He is risen. The special creation of this earth was a vital part of the plan of salvation. It had a particular purpose. It was no afterthought. Neither was it an accident of any proportion nor a spontaneous development of any kind. It was the result of deliberate advanced planning and purposeful creation. The divine architect devised it. The almighty creator made it and assigned to it a particular mission. This earth was not designed merely as a home for mortals, however. Not at all. It has a greater destiny than that. This earth will not remain in its present condition. It is to become immortal. It will pass through a refining process by which it will become a celestial globe and be like a Urim and Thummim in the skies. That will require further acts of divine creation. And, of course, ordinary common sense tells us that no spontaneous accident could produce a change like that. The Savior will reside here when the earth is celestialized and his Father will visit it from time to time. It then will be the eternal home of those who achieve celestial glory in the kingdom of God. Such is the final destiny of the earth. Such was the purpose God had in mind in creating it, for he planned it so in the beginning. Do we appreciate what this earth really means to us? Do we see why it was made do we understand its purpose? Do we see that there was nothing accidental or spontaneous about its origin? Do we see that its creation was literally and truly, completely and exclusively an act of God? And who was the Creator? Our Heavenly Father declares that it was His own beloved Son who accomplished the mighty task. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, said the Apostle John. By Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. 
All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So said the Apostle Paul. The Almighty also affirmed it when he told Moses, Worlds without number have I created, and I also created them for mine own purpose, and by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. Christ also taught that he himself was the Creator. Said he to the prophet Joseph Smith, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, who created the heavens and the earth. One of our most touching and impressive revelations of the Savior is provided in the book of Ether, where the appearance of the Lord to the brother of Jared is recorded. I quote briefly from it. Said the Savior to the brother of Jared, Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. Never have I shown myself unto man whom I created, for never has man believed in me as thou hast. Seest thou that ye are created after mine own image? Yea, even all men were created in the beginning after mine own image. This body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit, and man have I created after the body of my spirit, and even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. There we have it, in his own words, in glorious, irrefutable truth, Christ is the Creator. Shall we not accept his word in preference to uninspired theories of men? Probably the greatest challenge to belief in Christ today is the fast-spreading denial that he is the Creator, coming from men who would supplant the revealed truth with a very tenuous and fragile theory that the universe and all life came about in some mysterious, spontaneous, accidental manner. To deny that he is the Creator is to deny also that he is the Christ. To deny that he is the Creator is to deny that he can save us from our sins. To deny that he is the Creator is to deny that he broke the bands of death. It is to reject the fact of the resurrection. To deny that he is the Creator is to deny that he wrought out an atonement on the cross at Calvary. To deny that he is the Creator is to reject his gospel and the true Christian religion. But he is the Creator. He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior of the world. He did accomplish his atonement on Calvary, and he did bring about the resurrection. This we know by the revelation of God. His gospel is true, and we love it. And we love him and deem it a privilege to serve him. Can anyone ask for a plainer definition of creation and the purpose of life than is given in our scriptures? We even have the word of our eternal Father. He bore testimony that Jesus Christ, his beloved Son, and in addition declared that he is very well pleased with him. He not only affirmed that Christ created the worlds, but after each step in creation, did he not say that the work was well done? When the waters and the firmament were put in position, God saw that it was good. When life was placed on the earth, God saw that it was good. And when creation was finished, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. The Father is a God of truth, and he said that the Savior is full of grace and truth. Then dare we disbelieve him or reject his words? The Savior did the work of creation 
and the father was well pleased with him, then should we not be pleased to accept him and serve him? The father repeatedly expressed his satisfaction with the ministry of his son. Did he not so speak at the baptism of Christ? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Did he not repeat it on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Did he not introduce the Savior to the Nephites with the same expression, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And when he appeared to the boy Joseph Smith, did he not give his beloved Son another positive endorsement? Isn't the testimony of our eternal Heavenly Father sufficient to erase all doubt from the human mind? It is he who declared that Jesus is his Son and that he did all things well. Then what is our faith? It is that God is our Heavenly Father and that through the gospel we may become like Him and live with Him. It is that Jesus of Nazareth is His Son and our Savior. It is that the Savior indeed was the creator of heaven and earth and that He is the divine pattern after whom we should fashion our lives. Therefore, let us follow him and worship him in spirit and in truth. He holds out a warm invitation and says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he was born, the angels sang. When he died, the heavens wept. When he broke the bands of death, angels were there to greet him. And so was Mary. She knew him and recognized him as the Christ. But some doubted. Shall we be like Mary and believe and accept him? Or shall we join the doubters and shroud ourselves in the darkness of unbelief? Jesus is a God of light and life, not a symbol of death and doubt. He lives and will save everyone who is willing to serve him. He is our divine Redeemer and our eternal Creator. He is the resurrection and the life. This is our testimony to the world. Yes, today is Easter, and to us Easter means Christ, the resurrected Christ, the Son of God, our Creator, and our Redeemer. So we testify in his holy and sacred name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.